Thank you, Lord. So, yeah, uh, just a, a quick update from the UK. I was um, here in this church for a number of years, and then around the end of 2014, <clears throat> I began to, <clears throat> pardon me, a little, something caught in my throat, kind of shut things down here in the States, and the Lord had opened the door for me to go to Austria first. So January of 2015, I went to Austria, and I served with a Calvary Chapel ministry there for a year. And I felt that through that, the Lord was going to use that as a gateway to something else, which he did open that door. And in 2016, I moved to York, England, as Tony mentioned. I'm actually a, a British citizen. I'm British and American. My mother was born in England, so I was able to get a British passport through her, and that opened some doors. So, yeah, I've been in England for about five years teaching at the Bible College, um, involved in the church there. In York, we have all kinds of different ministries. We have a, a prison ministry that I got involved in from early on. Unfortunately, that's kind of um, on lockup right now, if you will, uh, because of COVID. We haven't been able to go in in a while, but we still pray for the men who are in there. Uh, we have just a lot of different ministries that are part of a thriving church there in York. We were hit by the virus much in the same way the rest of the world was. So uh, we had a last um, this earlier this year, March of 2020, we had um, a wonderful semester that was starting. And then about six weeks into it, the virus hit, and we had to basically send the students home. And we switched to an online format. So we finished the semester, but we just had to do it through YouTube and Schoology and, and whatnot, different online sort of things. And the Lord, it's just what the Lord had for that season. Um, we weren't sure if we were going to do a, a fall semester this year. We, in the summertime, we were just like, well, what do we do? And we would get together and pray as a staff. And we felt that the Lord wanted us to just keep moving forward in faith and just kind of entrusting it to him. So we did that. And lo and behold, we had one of the best in-person semesters that we've ever had this past fall. It was also the smallest group that we've ever had, but it seems as if the Lord kind of used the virus to filter everything. And those who were there were the ones who heard the voice of the Lord and stepped out in faith and just did it. And sometimes, you know, we have to be cautious, but sometimes we have to hear the voice of the Lord and do what he says, regardless of what is kind of playing out on the ground. And that's, um, yeah, that's just part of walking by faith. And that's what God has called us to. So we had a, a really awesome semester and we just finished it up and we are planning on doing a spring semester, Lord willing, um, kind of walking in that direction and we'll see what the Lord does. So, um, <clears throat> Yeah, so that's a little bit of the update. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, if you could turn to Joshua 2, I want to look at the person of Rahab. And um, just by way of introduction, we all know, hopefully we all know about the book of Joshua and that Joshua is the man that God has chosen to lead the Israelites into the promised land. They were led by Moses out of Egypt, out of slavery. And unfortunately, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years due to unbelief and, and all that sort of thing. But there came a point in time where God said, okay, I'm going to kick my plan into high gear again. So he calls Joshua, a man who had been a slave in Egypt, who came out in the Exodus with Moses. And um, I was thinking about this. I always kind of... Uh, you know, wondered about what Joshua did. And he was quite likely actually a brickmaker, right? Because that was, seems to have been the primary occupation of the enslaved 
uh, Israelites in Egypt. So he was probably actually a brickmaker at one point. And then he came out in the Exodus, and he was one of the 12 spies that went into the land and one of the two that brought back a good report against all the other um, naysayers. And because he brought back a good report along with Caleb, God allowed Caleb and Joshua to enter the promised land. So Joshua is the man that God uses to lead the people of God into the promises. And the name of Joshua, uh, it's also translated as Jesus. It's really the same name. And it means God, Yahweh saves or Yahweh has become our salvation, that sort of thing. And as such, Joshua is a type of Christ. And crossing over the Jordan River and possessing the land becomes a type for our Christian experience. There are still, you know, it's not crossing the Jordan isn't um, dying and going to heaven, but it's coming into the Christian life. And does that mean that all the battles stop and everything is peaceful? Well, no, not at all. There are all kinds of battles. And we see through the book of Joshua all these different scenarios, and it's never the same situation twice. There's Jericho, and then there's AI. There's first a failure, and then there's a success. And then there's the <clears throat> the coalition of southern kings and the northern kings, and all these different battles that are all fought with different strategies that the Lord gives. And there's always, I mean, it's always the same faithful God, but there's always a different strategy uh, depending on the different battles that Joshua and the Israelites find themselves up against. And it's very similar in the Christian life. It's always the same faithful Lord, and it's always the same walk of faith where we don't always see where we're going, but we've heard the voice of the Lord, and we know that he's faithful, so we move forward. We don't know how this particular battle is going to play out, but we know that the Lord is faithful, and we do the things that he's called us to do. We're strong and courageous, just like Joshua has commanded to be. So the conquest of Canaan it's certainly, in Joshua's day, a physical battle, but it's more than just a physical battle. It's a physical battle with spiritual dimensions. And if you remember from Genesis um, chapters 12 and chapters uh, 15, the Abrahamic covenant is given. God calls Abraham out from Ur the Chaldees. He's an idolater, basically a pagan like everyone else in the world. And God calls him out. And he gives him a promise of a land and a seed and a blessing. And these things are contained within the Abrahamic covenant. And you can look at the actual covenant being ratified in Genesis 12, where God himself walks through the pieces of, of the animals. We don't have time to talk too much about that today. But um, there is this land that has been promised to Abraham, and God had a specific purpose for this geographical piece of territory. If you think about the things that happened within the land of Israel, first of all, there was the incarnation. It was the very place that God was going to crash into our human experience in the land of Canaan, in uh, Bethlehem, as we just celebrated what, the day before yesterday. We celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas. So God had this plan for the land that included the incarnation and then the ministry of Jesus and then ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus where he died on the cross for our sins and then the resurrection and then the birth of the church at Pentecost. All of these things God had 
a plan for in the land of Canaan. So sometimes we think, well, why, you know, why does the land matter and all that? Well, yes, it does. God had a specific purpose, and he still does have a specific purpose for the land of Israel today. Now, because God had a purpose for the land, the devil also had a plan to thwart God's purposes. And we know that one of the things that we know from Scripture is that there were giants in the land that had frightened 10 of the 12 spies of the previous generation. In the book of Numbers, chapter 13, it says, this is the report of the um, the unbelieving 10 spies that come back and give the bad report. Uh, Numbers 13.33, it says, There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak. Uh, they came from giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our sight. So we were in their sight. So there are these giants, in a sense, that were planted in the land that God has great plans for, and there were spiritual forces that were there that were opposed to God's purposes. There are basically... The devil is opposed to everything that God does, and God has a purpose for this land. So there is this spiritual opposition right from the beginning. So Joshua isn't merely, it's not merely a a military sort of campaign that's happening, but there are these spiritual dimensions to it, and therefore it has to be fought with spiritual weapons. Sometimes, you know, we think about the conquest of Canaan, especially Uh, from today's point of view, and it may not seem to be a politically correct sort of thing. God basically directed his people to conquer the land of Canaan and to wipe out its inhabitants. Well, that's not a very nice thing if we look from today's perspective, is it? It seems barbaric, but if we go back to Genesis 15, God had said to Abraham, he said, in the fourth generation, they, they shall return here. Your descendants shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites, or another word for the Canaanites, is not yet complete. So by the time of Joshua, and Joshua's, they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan River and invade Canaan. By this time, the iniquity of the Amorites has become so offensive that God has to judge it. So, so what was going on in the land of Canaan that that God had to judge? Well, we know from Deuteronomy 18, there were occult practices that were happening. There was witchcraft, there was sorcery. There was also child sacrifice that was happening. Deuteronomy 12.31, it says, For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And we know... um, Molech was a god that was worshipped in Canaan and in other places, and basically it was a um, representations of Molech where a hot a statue that would be heated up, the arms would be glowing red, and people would actually put their infants on those arms and sacrifice their babies to this basically demonic entity. And that was one of the things that was happening um, in the land of Canaan. There was also incest and homosexuality and even bestiality. And uh, I'll read a passage, Le- uh, Leviticus 18, 24, 25. And uh, the word, it says, do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled. In other words, God is saying these specific things, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, were happening 
in the land. And he says, for the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. So we think of these things, child sacrifice and all these, um, you know, just really awful practices. All of these things are presently happening behind the walls of Jericho, behind the walls of Ai, and throughout all the cities of Canaan. And these aren't the things that God has created people for. God has created people in his image to glorify him. And we see this kind of twisting in this perversion of the purpose of why human beings were created. Basically, every kind of weird and evil thing that could be acted out was being acted out. And, you know, you think about the cities of the world today and all the places and all the things that are happening behind closed doors as we speak. And so because of this, uh, Joshua 6, 17, right before they're getting ready to destroy Jericho, he says, now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. There's a, a, um, a Hebrew word, harem, which is, it can be interpreted under the ban or devoted to destruction. And it's not simply to destroy, but to devote wholly to the Lord or to destroy in devotion to the Lord. And so God used his people to bring about this judgment, and they did it as an act of obedience and honoring to the Lord. Now, what does that mean for us today? Do we destroy the enemies of God physically? Well, absolutely not. We're, we're in the New Testament context. Judgment is the Lord's. However, we do wage a spiritual sort of warfare, and we'll talk more about that. But anyway, this is the backdrop for Joshua 2. And uh, Joshua 2, it's basically Jericho on the eve of destruction. So I want to talk about today really is specifically Rahab and her interaction with the spies. And we could say that it's a story of redemption in a brothel. So in the middle of kind of a twisted and pagan society, there's still someone who finds redemption. And we see God's plan unfolding. So if you haven't turned already, please turn in your Bibles to uh, chapter 2 of the book of Joshua, and we'll read. And if you wouldn't mind standing as we uh, read the word of the Lord. And it says, now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out secretly, or rather, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy out secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came uh, to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the women were rather, then the men 
pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what uh, you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also uh, will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this uh, business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, and she dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, Unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from from your oath, which you uh, made us swear. Then she said, according to your word, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but they did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told them all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. You may be seated. Thanks, Rick. Okay, so a little bit of water here. <clears throat> so we have we're introduced to um, Rahab and the spies. Verse one here it says Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, "Go view the land, especially Jericho." So they're in. Acacia Grove, and Acacia Grove is basically seven miles east of the Jordan River, and it's the last stop 
on their journey before finally entering the land. After 40 years of wandering, they were in bondage in, in Egypt. They came out, and because of their grumbling and, and unbelief, they basically wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and that whole generation that was adult perished. They basically died in the wilderness, and now God is doing a new work with this new generation, and they are in the last place of their wilderness experience, Acacia Grove, and they're on the edge of a good thing. They're on the edge of the fulfillment of God's promise. So <clears throat> Joshua sends two spies in. We know they were they uh, they had been Joshua and Caleb had been two of the twelve spies back in Numbers, and only Joshua and Caleb brought back a good report. Joshua said, "You know, we can eat them up." My paraphrase, and he says. Their protection has departed from them. Joshua has eyes of faith, and he recognizes that God is in this so we can do it. Unfortunately, because of others, he's delayed a long time, yet God allows him to redo it and to do it the right way with a group of people who has faith. So here Joshua sends out just two spies. Two spies are enough to collect some basic intelligence as far as as what is happening on the ground, but not enough to dishearten Israel as, have, as had happened 40 years previously. So they're on this top secret mission, and their mission is to view the land, especially Jericho. Jericho is the key fortified city. It's the stronghold that lies right in front of them. Uh, it was the key citadel of the Jordan Valley, which commanded the passes into the the central highlands once they make the initial thrust into um, jericho they'll cut off the north and the south and they'll be able to engage those as two separate campaigns so pretty much everything here well everything depends on the lord but from a strategic perspective everything depends on success at jericho and god is going to ensure that as uh joshua is strong and courageous and as he meditates on the word of the Lord, God will give him good success. So the two spies head out from the encampment at Acacia Grove, and they probably head north and swim across the river. We know from chapter 3 that it was the time of the spring harvest and that the Jordan overflowed its banks. So it's a pretty much of a rushing river. If you've been to Israel these days kind of looks like a muddy stream because a lot of the water has been diverted for irrigation and all that sort of thing. Back in this time, it was more of a rushing river, and especially because it was the harvest time, it was um, quite something to behold. So these spies, uh, they the original Mossad, they sw evidently swim across the river, and they come make their way to Jericho, and they come to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and they lodge there. Now, it's, it's um, of course, they would not have been going to her for her services. It was a very serious, and it was a holy mission that they were on. And really what they're doing here is executing the initial stages of the conquest in <clears throat> the military, usually what happens. I, years ago, I was in field artillery in the Army, and 
what happens is an advanced party is sent out to occupy a position and to determine where the um, all the various pieces are, are going to be and kind of set things up for the larger force that will come into place. So here you have these spies that are going forward and, and they're, they're kind of doing executing the initial stages of the conquest. And one of the things that we see here is that God is always working things from multiple angles and he has a way of leading us to the right connection at the right time. He's he's working through Joshua as the leader. Joshua is getting words from the Lord and Joshua sees uh, we won't look at it today but he sees the commander of the the um the army of the Lord, and he gets all this encouragement from the Lord. But God is working on the other end also here in Jericho. He's working in this person of Rahab, and he has a way of leading us to the right place <clears throat> at the right time. <clears throat> and I would say, I would ask, is it a random thing that they have this encounter with Rahab? You know, think of all the people in Jericho who probably would have you know, blown the whistle, Israelis or Hebrews, whatever they would have called them, and turned them in. And they probably would have gotten a reward from the king and all that sort of thing. And the spies would have been executed. And all these, you know, there was very much potential for things to go wrong from a human perspective early on. But God is in the midst of it. So God leads them to Rahab and she's going to hide the spies. She's going to give them encouraging information. And God in his mercy is going to spare her and her family. So Rahab acts quite courageously, which is incidentally the thing that Joshua has been commanded to do, only be be strong and courageous, right? Well, here we see Rahab being courageous and she does the right thing um some have attempted to soften the uh, rahab's image by presenting her as an innkeeper but the new testament witnesses clearly refer to her as rahab the harlot and we see that in hebrews chapter 11 and we see that in james chapter 2 and we know what do we know from jesus well we know that he hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes and they believed in him. So Jesus is calling sinners to repentance. He's calling people with a past because he wants to give them a future. And that's what Jesus does. If you're watching online, or if you're listening at some point, you know, it doesn't matter what your past is. Here we have Rahab. It's about what God wants to do with your future. Everybody is where they are right now in this world today, right? Yet God is calling people and he has a different future <clears throat> for whosoever will, right? He says, whosoever will may come. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And so we here we have Rahab, a prostitute, and... Uh, she makes this kind of split-second decision to hide these men. So verse 2, it says, It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come to come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, 
who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. So here we're introduced to the king of Jericho, and the king of Jericho is the temporal earthly power, and whether he knows it or not, he's at the end of his reign. His, he's going to be dead within two weeks. The, the walls will have fallen, and all the people will have been killed. And here we have this temporal kind of um, power who thinks that he's in control of the situation that is happening. And <clears throat> you think about all of the evil that the king of Jericho has allowed during his reign. And here he learns that spies come, so he tries to defend Jericho and tries to mitigate the damage caused by the spies. But God's plan of judgment is already in motion, and there is a greater king who is superintending everything and knows exactly what's happening the world over. He knows what's happening in Jericho, and he knows what's happening in Northfield, and he knows what's happening in Washington and, and London and wherever, in Brussels, all these places God knows, and he is the great king. And that's the only thing that we really need to concern ourselves with, right? So the fact that spies uh, have come is known, and these spies are in potentially great danger, but God makes all the difference. In Psalm sixty-eight twenty, it says, Our God is a God who saves from the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. And the conquest is God's plan, so it will happen. Uh, the spies, they are uh, discovered. It wasn't uncommon for strangers to be in Jericho. Jericho was a crossroads of sorts. There would have been people coming from the north heading down to Egypt and then also vice versa. So it wouldn't necessarily have been odd for strangers to pass through. However, something identified these men where it was known that they were uh, Hebrews, that they were Israelis. So Rahab here, she makes a decision maybe in a split second. It says in verse 4, it says, Then the woman took the two men and hid them. And I would say that something is happening inside of Rahab. She spent her adult life selling her body to men, and she sees the debased lives and the, the sin that's basically permeated throughout her city, and she's been a part of it also. And who knows that she maybe uh, possibly offered some of her own babies to Molech, Right, Her business was in a business where potentially she uh, became pregnant numerous times. And so it's quite likely that she may have been involved in just all the debaseness and all the evil that was happening in her city. And, you know, perhaps something is happening on the inside and she recognizes, you know, she sees the emptiness and she recognizes that there's a judgment coming and she sees the holiness of the God of Israel, and she sees that they have one God. They don't have all these other pagan deities that are worshipped in perverse and bizarre sorts of ways. And she sees that there's something attractive about the God of Israel. And now, all of a sudden, <clears throat> she meets two representatives of the God that she has heard judged Israel and Sihon and, and Og and all that sort of thing. And Something is happening on the inside, and I would say that a conversion is happening. And there's this encounter with the spies that seems to be a catalyst 
that tips everything over for her, and in a courageous act of faith, she hides the spies, and she puts herself at great risk. And if you think about it, at the very least, she probably would have been executed as a traitor. What do we know? What is the testimony from Hebrews 11? It says, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So the testimony from the book of Hebrews is that she's already operating in faith, and there's this thing that's happening on the inside of her. And, you know, sometimes our conversion, I look at the way that I came to know the Lord, and there was this work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us, John chapter 16, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world in regard to sin, in regard to righteousness, and in regard to judgment, that that there is such a thing as sin, that there is a righteous standard, and that there is a judgment that's coming. And there was this work of the Holy Spirit that was happening in my life. I can look back in retrospect. It was happening a good couple years before I fully surrendered. And I I, um, even remember when I got saved, it was January of 1990, and I was living in a winter Mm -hmm. rental in Morningside Road in Ocean City. And um, I had a brother and a sister who had come to the faith, Mm -hmm. and they were praying for me, I found out. And I had made this decision. I knew that the Lord was drawing me, and I made this decision that I was going to become a Christian, but I had these roommates, and it was, you know, like a party house and all that sort of thing. And I was like, well, you know what? I want to become a Christian, but I don't want them to know about it. So I have to wait until May when our lease is up, and then I'll become a Christian and all that, and they won't know about it. And there was this evening. I I was working the night shift at the Acme at 34th Street, and so I would come home, and I would sleep during the day. And this particular day, no one was home, and I wake up. It's like 5 o'clock in the evening. It's dark outside, and I just feel, like, empty, and I just feel dead inside. And I'm just washing dishes there by by the kitchen sink, and the Holy Spirit is hammering down on me. And there's just this, it was like a tipping point, and there's this quiet capitulation of my will that happened where, you know, I embraced everything that Jesus was, and I got filled with the peace of the Holy Spirit. And I can't explain everything that happened that evening, but it was real, and I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, not at a, a church service, not at an altar call, although God uses those things, but it was just this quiet surrender in my heart. And there was whatever it was that day, that was a tipping point. And here you have Rahab and all these things, you know, her whole life, all the sin and all the twistedness of her society. And she's heard of the God of Israel. We have heard of him. And she recognizes just the pure and holiness of monotheistic worship of Yahweh as opposed to Molech and all this twistedness. And just in a minute, she surrenders. It says if that's the meeting the spies, it's like this catalyst that tips everything over. She's like, okay, I'm just going to throw everything in and throw myself on the mercy of this God of whom these representatives are here. So what does she do? She lies. (laughs) She says, yes, the men came to me, But I did not know where they were from, and it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for for you may overtake them. So Rahab lies, so, so we have to address the question, is it okay to lie? And what about the morality of lying? Well, God doesn't 
approve of it. The Bible simply records without condoning. And Rahab is in the midst of a conversion. She hasn't been to a new believers class yet, and sanctification is this ongoing thing. So she does kind of what she does in the spur of the moment to keep the um, the men alive, to spare them. I believe that the Lord, he doesn't want us to lie, and he'll always make a way. If we resolve to honor him, he will make a way where we don't have to. Sometimes it may seem a little bit on the edge, but he will make a way for us. So verse 6, it says, um, but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the on the roof. So it would have been a, in the Middle East, ancient Near East, it would have been a flat roof. Flax was basically a, a plant that was harvested. It would be soaked in water to separate the fibers, and then it would be dried in the sun and woven into linen cloth. So the spies are probably lying very, very still and praying underneath these piles of flax that are, are drying, and they're not discovered because God is with them, and God honors Rahab's decision, and God is in the midst of this thing that's happening. So verse 7, then the men pursued them by the road uh, to the Jordan, to the fords. Uh, As soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So the the pursuers, um, the fords would have been the the quickest, most logical escape route if, if they were heading directly back to Acacia Grove, but Rahab directs them the other way to the mountain to hide out for a couple days. Verse 8, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Think about Rahab's words here. She's an inhabitant of Jericho. It's her culture her society, and she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land, coming from a, um, a, a pagan prostitute, basically. She, at this point, has the eyes to see the big picture, and she recognizes that the Israelites aren't simply the latest superpower. They're, not, they're definitely not a more mighty army. They don't have, like, superior weapons and all that sort of thing, no chariots, um, But God is doing something, and she recognizes that it's a God thing and that God has a purpose for the land, and she recognizes that time is up for her people, and she believes the testimony of God that her world is coming to an end there, and that's exactly what's happening. And so she's able to articulate the mood of the Canaanites, the terror of you has fallen on us. Uh, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. And why is that? Well, God himself has struck fear into the hearts of the people. And we see that various places in the Old Testament. And, you know, God can strike fear into the hearts of the people who oppose him. And he can also cause a great boldness to rise up in his own people. The, the righteous are as bold as a lion, and Philippians one twenty eight, Paul talks about, uh, he says that, you know, when we come up against these things, that we can be not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. And if you think about the previous generation, the previous generation and the spies from that uh, group, 
had been terrified, but not this group, because God here is on the offensive and he is on the move. Verse 10, for we have heard, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. See, this is why a testimony is an important thing. And when we share our testimony, we can tell people what God has done. And here she says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. So the memory of the Red uh, Sea crossing in the book of Exodus, some 40 years before this period of time, has not yet faded from the people's minds. And also there's the more recent defeats of the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, Numbers 21, are fresh in the minds of, of those of Jericho and the Canaanites. And news of epic battles circulated throughout the, the ancient world. There were stories of battles and kings and all that. You can go to the British Museum today and look at clay tablets and cylinders and things that talk about battles and ancient kings and, and all that sort of thing. Well, here, Yahweh is famous in the land of Canaan because of what he did to the Egyptians and Sihon and Og and all that. And he can be famous in our lives, too, as we have a testimony of his faithfulness, like the song, all my life you have been faithful, all my life you have been so, so good. And we have that testimony that develops and grows the longer that we walk with the Lord and we see his faithfulness, and we're able to look at people in our society and our friends and family, and we're able to tell them that God has been faithful. And here, Rahab, a pagan harlot, um, testifies that we know what your God has done for you. We've observed that. The pagan world observes sometimes. They may not say it. Here Rahab says it, but they recognize when they see the mighty hand of God. They know what that looks like because it's like nothing else. So um, verse 11, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is a God in heaven, he is God, not a God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And this has to be music to the spies' ears. They're, they're going on this mission and then they almost get caught. It's just like, you know, it's like you see the movie and there's someone hiding behind a door and they almost get caught, but they don't get caught. And here the spies don't get caught and they hear this confession from Rahab, the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven and on earth beneath. Wow. She believes. This is a testimony that Rahab believes that he is the God in heaven and on earth, right? He rules in heaven and he rules on earth. Romans chapter one tells us that men are without excuse. Even the unconverted have an idea of who God is, yet they suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what can be known of him is revealed to them, right? Rahab receives the tes that testimony that is going forth, and she recognizes that he is the God of heaven and earth, and as such, he has the right to judge. She's willing to turn by faith and receive forgiveness. Many people today don't believe that God has the right to judge. Here, Rahab recognizes that, yes, he does have the right to judge. Um, she gives the mood of the people in Jericho. They're, they're fearful, but they don't really perceive that there is an imminent divine 
judgment at this point. It's about two weeks away, the destruction of Jericho. Jericho was a, a secured walled city. It probably even had two, like a double wall. Um, laying siege was a long-term sort of undertaking. They had just brought in the spring harvest, and there was a water supply. Jericho was an oasis. So theoretically, based on other battles of the ancient Near East, they could have held out, who knows, six months, a year, two years, as, as siege was being laid and all that. So they have this vague sort of idea that, yeah, this doesn't look too good, but it's not going to happen right away because we have lots of food, we have two big walls, and we have a water supply. But it was God that was coming against them. And, you know, we look at the world today, and most people have a vague sort of idea that that their life is going to end some point, and there may be some, they may sort of be fearful of death and what really is on the other side in terms of a judgment, but they don't realize how potentially thin a string their life is hanging on. And you never know if you're going to, I mean, God forbid, but people are in car wrecks and they get illnesses and they die before they're three score and 10, right? It was, um, Jonathan Edwards was a minister in New England prior to the Revolutionary War around the time of the First Great Awakening. And sermons that before they recorded on cassettes or DVDs or uh, audio files and all that, they used to write sermons out and people would give each other copies, written copies of sermons. And he wrote a sermon and he delivered it. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And um, one of the things that he wrote in that was that unconverted man walks over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. That may be a harsh thing to say, but is that not a reality in our world that people who are unconverted are, in a sense, walking over the pit of hell on a rotten covering that could cave in at any time? You don't know. Nobody knows how much time they have, how long they have. And um, so you hear you have the people of Jericho, and they have, you know, they have some idea that there's something that doesn't look very good at all that's coming their way, but they don't realize how imminent it is. And our world today, you know, people are like maybe fearful and whatnot and um, may have an idea that there's a judgment coming, but it, it could be, you know, in a millisecond. And that's why it's important to be prepared. And that's why it's important to be sensitive to what God may want to do in our lives. And especially if you're not converted, if you've never uh, submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, there's no better time to do that than right now, to just quietly surrender your will and believe in the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again and that you that can be personally appropriated into your life and you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. So um, the, the vast majority of the people in Jericho had no idea that it, everything would be over for them in two weeks. And, you know, we look at our world today, Jesus' testimony in Matthew twenty four thirty seven. he says that, um, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. And we know the testimony of Noah. He, you know, he was building an ark. We know that he was a, a preacher of right, righteousness. The fact that he was building an ark 
suggested that there would be a need for it at some time in the not-too-distant future. So there's a testimony that was going forth. And here, Rahab believes that the judgment is imminent and she seeks mercy. So this is important. Verse 12, she says, Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all they have and deliver our lives from death. So this word kindness that we see, um, it's a, a Hebrew word. Uh, it's it's hesed. Uh, the English transliteration is H-E-S-E-D. But it's a word for kindness, and it occurs 250 times in the Old Testament, and it means loyal, steadfast, or faithful love based on a promise, agreement, or covenant. So what is Rahab saying here? Since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house. Rahab is basically requesting that the spies make a hesed agreement with her and her father's family, just as she had made a hesed agreement with them by sparing their lives. So she's asking uh, that Joshua's representatives make a covenant with her. She'll spare them, uh, spare their lives, and then they will spare her life and her family's life when the invasion comes. So here you have Joshua's representatives, the spies, making a covenant with Rahab. And what are the conditions of the covenant? Well, we learned that her house must be marked with a scarlet cord. Uh, her house was on the city wall. The Israelites would have uh, spotted it as they marched around the city. And also the two spies would have um, now be reunited with the rest of the, the Israelites. And they would have known where her house was. Uh, secondly, Rahab and her family were to remain in the house during the attack, and Rahab's door was the only door of escape from a world that was coming to an end, a door marked by a scarlet cord. Now the men answered her, our lives for your lives, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when... Um, the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly, it's that word has said again, and truly with you. In other words, we will honor the covenant. And oaths in the Old Testament were very serious and binding things. He didn't just say, I swear, I swear, or I promise. It was something that literally you staked your life upon. I I pledge that I will honor this covenant. That's what's happening here. So the spies make a deal as Joshua's representatives, that Joshua will have to honor this covenant. And, you know, as Jesus's representatives, we give people the terms of salvation. We, hey, it's the scarlet cord, man. It's the blood of Jesus that you have to come under. And if they do that, Jesus will honor that covenant. The, the world is destined for judgment, but if you by faith come under the covering of the blood of Jesus, you will be saved. So she puts the cord in the window, the thing that will spare her life. And um, her family had to come into the house with the scarlet 
cord to be saved and destruction would pass over the house and the grace of God would be there even in the midst of judgment of this world that was coming to an end. By faith, the, the, harlab, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe uh, when she had received the spies with peace. James tells us, likewise, uh, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Um, just wrapping up here soon, but just a couple more things. Another interesting point is that we find Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew 1, uh, verse 5, it says, uh, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Uh, and ultimately, she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And I would say, how do you get to be in a genealogy? Well, to be in a genealogy, you have to be either an ancestor or a descendant or both. And here we have Rahab becoming an ancestor of David and ultimately Jesus. So not only is Rahab spared from destruction, but there is a wedding and a baby in her future. Not only is she not destroyed, but she has a wedding and a baby in her future. So Rahab isn't simply going to be saved, but she's going to be saved for a purpose. And I'll read a quote from someone else. And it says, a harlot finds a husband, and while Jericho perishes, a marriage feast and a marriage ceremony are going to be a part of her future. Does that sound familiar as far as like a, a New Testament sort of scenario? We know that this world is going to perish, right? It's going to perish in judgment. Yet there will be a marriage ceremony that will be a part of our future. The Bible tells us that there's the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? The church is the, the bride of Christ. And our world is ultimately coming to an end. God's righteousness and his holiness require judgment. And there's one door of escape. And that door is marked by the blood of an innocent sacrifice. Passover, you know, the, the first Passover in Egypt, there was one way to be spared from the angel of death. It was to put the blood of the lamb on the, um, the lintel and the doorpost of the house. And those who came into the house would be spared from the angel of death. Noah and his world was coming to an end. And there was only one door um, into the ark, one door that would open up into the next world. What did Jesus refer to himself as in John chapter 10? He said, I am the door. So Jesus is that door. And there's one door that we offer as, in a sense, Joshua's representatives that they can come into and be saved from a world that is coming to an end. And that door is Jesus Christ. Whoever comes to him in faith will be saved. So um, running out of time here, but I'll, I'll ask a question. Will we identify ourselves with a world that is under judgment and is coming to an end? And people do that all the time. Their, their whole life is this world and they, they wind up missing everything. Or will we identify ourselves with Jesus and with God's people. That's what he's called us to do, right? And that's what Rahab kind of does on the spur of the moment. This, all of a sudden, the spies are there. The representatives of Joshua are there.
and she makes a decision in that moment. And every all the work that perhaps the Holy Spirit has been doing in her life up to that point is preparation. And now the representatives of Joshua are there and they give her the terms, you know, the red cord, you have to come into the door and you'll be passed over. And that's really what we, the thing that we offer people today, right? Salvation is through Jesus alone. So if you don't know him for some reason, or if you're, you're watching online and you've never put your faith in Jesus, it's really quite a simple message. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed would not perish and have eternal life. And he's looking for us to surrender our will to him. And he'll give us in exchange, he'll exchange our lives, right? And he'll give us his life and he'll fill us with his peace and he'll give us a purpose, a real purpose for our lives that has meaning and he'll give us his Holy Spirit that will empower us to live in this world. I have more to say, but out of time. So uh, let's wrap it up there. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have, um, given us Jesus, even though this world is coming to an end. We have a great future, Lord. We thank you that you've redeemed us. And we pray that you would just go before us all the days of our lives, that you would bless this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name.